Well, let me begin by asking you a Bible story question. Do you remember the story in the Bible of Gideon and his 300? If you remember it, would you say amen? It's Judges 6, Judges 7 and 8, right around there. Um, the story of Gideon is the story of God's deliverance of the people of Israel through a very small army of Israelite soldiers. So the Midianites have conquered the land of Israel and they're, they're occupying the land and the Israelites are suffering as a result of that. And so God goes to Gideon and he says, Gideon, I'm going to make you a mighty man of valor and you are going to lead the army which is going to deliver my people from the Midianites. And so the Spirit of God comes upon Gideon, he sounds the trumpet, gathers an army. It's a small army, 32,000 men who gather to Gideon to fight 100,000 plus Midianites. They're outnumbered three or four to one. But God says to Gideon, you've got 32,000, you have too many. Because if you go beat the Midianites, you're going to say, well, look what we did. We were outnumbered three or four to one and we still beat them. Now, God said, you have too many people, so we're going to thin them out. So he said, tell all your soldiers who are afraid they can go home. Of the 32,000, 22,000 went home. <laughs> Left him with 10,000. And God said, you still have too many. Can I ask you a question? God ever say anything to you that doesn't make sense in the moment? <laughs> He said, you still have too many, and so we're going to divide them up. We're going to whittle this crowd down a bit more, and here's the way we're going to do it. Take them down to the water, to the, to the uh, spring, and I want you to tell them to get a drink. And God said, I'm going to be watching, and based on how they drink, I'm going to divide them. And if you know that text, you know that 9,700 of them drank in one way, 300 of them drank in another way, and Gideon must have thought, well, I'm only losing 300 more, that's not so bad, until God sent the 9,700 home and said, I'm going to defeat the Midianites with your 300 men. Now here's the question, what was it about those 300 men that God saw that made them worthy warriors? Well, if you read the text, here's what we learn. That when they came down to the water, that 9,700 men came down, dropped their swords, and plunged their face in the water like this. In fact, the Bible says they drank the water like a dog drinks water. They just put their face down in the water. 300 of them drank differently. 300 of them because the Midianites were just across the valley. The enemy was close at hand and could attack at any moment. 300 of them came with their sword in hand and they drank like this. They cupped their hand and drank the water and they had their sword at the ready. And what made them worthy warriors was their awareness of the enemy and their preparedness to fight. I want to say it again. What made them worthy warriors was their awareness of their enemy and their preparedness to fight. So let me ask you a question. Are you aware of your enemy? Do you realize, are you cognizant of how deeply Satan hates Christ, and as a result, how much he is opposed to you. Some of you 
Many of us, I hope, are people who are fully committed to living out the will of God in our lives. We are. We, we want Jesus to be honored. We want our lives to please him. We want to carry out his purpose. That is our heart. And if that's you, know this, there is a target on your back. And the enemy is coming after you. Many of you are parents. Many of us are grandparents. And we want our children to grow up and serve the Lord. And so many of you raising little ones, you're committed to it. You're praying over them and you're training them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and you're training them to serve Jesus. You're modeling it for them. And if you're committed to passing the faith to your kids, just know this. The enemy has his eyes on you. He has his sights set on your kids and he wants to destroy your family. Many of us in this room are committed to work to uh, sharing our gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing our faith. Many of you are committed to inviting people to come and see what Jesus is doing. And you're, you're inviting friends and neighbors and relatives to, to uh, get them under the influence of the gospel. And just know this, that if that's who you are, the enemy it's coming after you. This past Wednesday night, we heard a testimony in our evangelism training class from a couple of young ladies, college students, who had been out with their trainer to share the gospel. And they talked about uh, literal spiritual warfare that they were engaged in, literally how that the enemy tried to thwart that work of sharing the gospel. And I promise you this, this week, Beginning today and going all the way through next Sunday at this hour, as we fast and as we pray and as we invite those that we love and, and as we are serving and as we're being that church that wants to bring people in to hear the resurrection story, you can know this, Satan is going to hinder with everything he's got. Now, about six weeks ago, we began talking about this spiritual battle and about the armor of God. And if there's one thing that we've learned along the way, or at least I hope you've learned this, is that the reality of spiritual warfare should not cause fear in the heart of the believer. We need to be aware of it. We need to know how to put on the armor of God, and we need to know how to fight. But we do not need to be afraid. I'm not saying any of this to you this morning to cause you to tremble. I'm not trying to be, be super dramatic. I'm simply telling you that the battle is real, but you have been outfitted if you know Christ. You have been given all that you need. And over these last five Sundays, we've been talking about all of these bits, these pieces of armor. Let me review them with you very, very quickly. We began six weeks ago by talking about the belt of truth. Do you remember that? That as a, the first piece of armor I put on is truthfulness, sincerity, authenticity. I want to live an authentic Christian life, so I wrap my life in truthfulness. Number two, we learned about the breastplate of righteousness. This is when believers determine I'm going to let the righteousness, which is true of me on the inside, begin to be obvious on the outside. I'm going to choose to live righteously day by day. Number three, we talked about the sandals of peace. That is that we are rooted in the gospel and because we are so rooted in the gospel that we have a firm footing and we stand in the battle with peace. Number four, we talked about the shield of faith. That's Ephesians 6 and verse number 16. Raising up your faith in God as a shield 
to all of those fiery darts. And last week we talked about in chapter 6 and verse number 17 about the helmet of salvation. That is the battle for the mind and we need to wrap our mind in the uh, hope and in the truths of salvation. So those are the five pieces of armor we've talked about so far. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, sandals of peace, shield of faith, and helmet of salvation. Now all of these, all five of those pieces of armor are defensive in nature. Did you notice that? All of them are meant to protect us. All of them are meant to deflect the the fiery darts or the attacks, the temptations uh, or the discouragements of the enemy. So as the enemy attacks, we're armored, and so those attacks are uh, uh, rebuffed. Today, we're going to look at the final piece of this suit of armor, which is the only weapon that is mentioned in Ephesians chapter number 6. It is the only offensive piece of equipment mentioned in the armor of God. Look at it. Ephesians chapter 6, in the middle part of verse 17. In verse number 17, he says, we're to take the helmet of salvation, and then verse 17 goes on to say, and the sword of the Spirit. We're to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, every warrior knows That in a battle, there are moments when you are on the defense and there are other moments when you are on the offense or on the offensive. If you want to put this into a more uh, maybe um, applicable context for us, this would apply in sports as well. Every sports team knows that there are times when you're defending your goal and then there are times when you are on offense and you're trying to push the enemy back or the other team back. The same is true in warfare. Every warrior is going to be defending himself or herself from time to time. But then there are times when we need to pull out the weapon and we need to go on the offense. And what Paul says is that we have been given a weapon, a sword. And that this sword, the sword of the Spirit, verse number 17, is the Word of God. Now, if a warrior is going to win a battle, if he's going to be standing when the battle is over, he has to know how to use his weapon. Simply having a weapon is not good enough. You have to know how to handle the weapon. And so today, I want to help you to know how to handle the Word of God. Of God, okay. I want to begin by having you write down this first uh, thing in your notes, and it's not anything that's um, that you don't already see in the passage. In fact, you're really just copying out of verse number 17. But write it down this way: the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's what the verse number 17 says. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. You know, sometimes when you're reading a passage, you have to really study the context and you really have to understand the scriptures to be able to rightly interpret what's being said. In other words, the scripture might use a metaphor or an illustration and you have to determine what that metaphor or illustration means. Not so in verse 17. Paul is crystal clear. You don't have to figure it out. Nobody should look at verse 17 and go, the sword of the Spirit. I wonder what that means. No, no. He tells you what he means. The sword of the Spirit is, what does it say? The Word of God. 
The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, you just need to know that I'm probably going to preach this entire message with this in my hand because it's cool, okay? So I'm just going to hang on to it. He says in verse number 17 that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. This, this, um, this bit of, of offensive equipment that we have been given is called the sword of the Spirit. Now, I want you to take your pen in verse number 17, and if you don't mind marking your Bible, I want you to draw a slash line through the word sword after the word S before the, the, or after the letter S before the letter W. I want you to divide the word sword into an S and then the rest of the word, which is word. I find it interesting that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God and the word is contained within the sword. What I want you to understand is this is the sword, W-O-R-D, this is the word. What you need is a handle. You need a handle on the word. You need to do more than just possess the word. You need a handle on the word. And what I want to do today is to help you get a handle on the word so that you will be able to wield the word as a weapon that will give you the victory. Now, when you think about the word of God, there are a couple of um, Greek words that are translated into English in our Bibles, which translate as word. Now, one of those, which many of you are familiar with, is the word logos. You know that word? Logos. And the word logos simply means the divine expression or the divine communication of God. Logo simply means uh, that God has revealed his message to us, okay? That word is used most frequently and is translated word in the New Testament. But there's a second Greek word that's translated W-O-R-D, and that's the word that's used in Ephesians 6.17. And it's the word rhema, rhema. And the word rhema is a very closely related word, but it's, it's, it's nuanced. It's a little different. It's a word which means the utterance. Or I could say it this way, the message that has been expressed. So logos would be perhaps a more general revelation of God, but rhema would be the word that God has expressed or the utterance of what God has revealed to us. Now, some people have a lot of fun talking about these two different words and, and they really color in the shades of meaning of the two different words and they like to live in the nuance and, and they're all, they, they like to talk about the logos is this but you need a rhema and I, I would encourage you to not do that. The, these words go together. I mean, they're really, they're even used interchangeably in the Bible. Multiple times they're used in the same verse and they're used interchangeably and mean the same thing. They simply mean when we talk about the Word of God, the Logos of the Rhema, what we mean is what God has revealed to us, what God has communicated or what God has spoken to us. Now, when you think about this sword, this Word, this revelation of God, I want you to think about the Word of God in three different ways. Okay, so number one, write it down as the written Word. That is the Bible. I want you to think about the Word of God as the fact that God has revealed Himself to us in His written Word. I'm talking about the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. I'm talking about the uh, 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 
books of the New Testament, 66 in all, all these, this written word that God has provided to us. Now, I hope you have a Bible with you today. I really do. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you to hold them up and put you on the spot, but I hope you brought one. And if you're not in the habit of bringing one, hear your pastor. Get in the habit of bringing a Bible with you to church. Carry your Bible to church. You say, well, Pastor, I've got it on my phone. It's on my device. That's okay. That's, that's good. I mean, that's fine. But listen, I, I want you to get a Bible. Your device should be what you use when you don't have your Bible with you. You say, why is that such a big deal? Here's why. Because if you're using a device right now, I almost promise you that before we leave church, your Bible is going to text you. <laughs> this will never text you. If you're using a device, I know the devil. I know him. That if you're, if you're holding your device, and again, I'm not beating you up, but if you're holding your device, you're going to go, mm, I wonder what's happening on Facebook. And, and you're just going to get distracted. So get a Bible. God has been so good to provide us with his written word. And don't neglect it. Cherish it. Know that he's provided it for us. All right, so you got the written word. Secondly, I want you to think about the living word. So we know that God has revealed himself in his written word, but we also know that he has revealed himself in the living word of God. And the living word of God has a name his name is Jesus. John chapter 1. Can I read it to you? You don't have to turn, but listen to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. All things were made by the Word. All things were made by Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made in him, in the word, in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. So the Bible says that the word has been living through all eternity. And this word who has been alive through all eternity actually came to be a man. Verse number 14 says, and the word who was in the beginning with God, was God, created all things, was life in the light of men. That word, verse 14, was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. It was the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is the revelation, the communication, the logos of God living in flesh. Do you understand? The written word, the living word, all right? There's a third word I want you to think of, a third way I want you to think about the word, and that is the spoken word. That is that when we exercise the privilege of speaking the word of God, we get to not only know the living word, and we get to not only read the written word, but we have the privilege of speaking the word of God. That's what God calls me to do from this pulpit, to speak the word of God. And God have mercy on my soul and any pastor who would stand in this pulpit or any pulpit and speak of themselves and not speak the word of God. You have that privilege. You can speak the word of God. You should speak it to yourself. When you don't know what to do, you're facing a decision, the first thing that you should begin to do is to talk to yourself about the word of God. And if a friend comes to you and they say, I need your advice, man. I'm facing this temptation. Or I'm facing this struggle. or I've got this decision. And I don't know what to do. And I, I, I'm really d debating on which direction I should go. S be quiet before you answer them. Pause. And you make certain that what comes out of your mouth is the word of God. They need the word. 
Think with me about the power of the spoken word. You know, Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah was that weeping prophet who preached for years and nobody ever repented, nobody ever came to church, nobody ever, nobody ever got saved. And he finally got to the place where he said, well, just forget it then. I'm not going to preach anymore. I won't say another word. I'm done. Not talking about you, God. Jeremiah chapter 20, I think it's in verse number 4. He says, I decided I wasn't going to speak anymore. And the word was in my bones like a fire. It just was burning in my heart. I finally had to just open my mouth and speak the word of God. It's it's a fire. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse number 9, I think. He says that the word of God is like like a hammer that breaks the rock. The word of God, when we speak it, it's powerful. In fact, listen to what Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 10 says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth and they make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word in the same way. Just as surely as the rain comes and makes the earth to bloom, just as certainly. God says, my word goes out, my spoken word goes out. It will not return void, it will not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. The word of God, be it written, be it living, be it spoken, it is powerful. So Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 17 says, I want you to take up the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Now, in verse 17, I want you to make another mark, if you will. I want you to circle this important word, of. Will you write it or circle it? Of. He says in verse number 17, and take up the sword of the Spirit. So he says the sword, the weapon that we have been given, is not the sword of Jim Dykes, or it's not the sword of you insert your name, It's not the sword of your church. It's not the sword of your denomination. It is the sword of the Spirit. Now, why is it called the sword of the Spirit? Well, I believe it's called the sword of the Spirit because the sword belongs to the Spirit of God. It's His sword. Here's a way that I would uh, encourage you to think about it. Write it down this way. It is to say that the Holy Spirit is the author. It's His It's his word. He's the author of the Bible. So when I hold the written word, or I speak the word contained in the written word, I recognize that it doesn't belong, it's not my word, it doesn't belong to me, it didn't come from me, I didn't conceive it. It was written by somebody, and that is, it was written by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Listen very carefully. If the Bible is not inspired by God, if y'all are listening, say amen. If the Bible is not inspired by God, if it's just another book, albeit a much beloved book, perhaps a book with wonderful life principles and wonderful directives on way to relate to others and think about religion, but if it's not a holy book, if it's not a divinely inspired book, then it has no more authority in my life than Huckleberry Finn. When I say that the Word of God is inspired, I am surrendering to the authority of the book, the authority of the Word. 
I am acknowledging that God has given it, and if God has spoken it, then I am accountable to, to believing it, to following it, to obeying it. And so if it's inspired, it is authoritative, and it gives me true hope for eternity. Uh, you're in Ephesians chapter 6. Turn over to 2 Timothy. It's a few pages forward. 2 Timothy's right after 1 Timothy. <laughs> Just in front of the book of Hebrews. You got 1 2 Timothy, then Titus, then Hebrews. Go to 2 Timothy chapter number 3. Listen to verse number 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says this. All scripture. Pop quiz. How much scripture? Shout it. Not some. Not most. How much? All. It's all scripture. Not just the parts I like. Not just the parts that are culturally acceptable that won't get me in trouble with my friends. No, all scripture. All scripture is what? All scripture is given by inspiration. That means that it, means that it comes from the Spirit of God. How many times over the years have I done this? All scripture is God breathed. God has breathed his word. And because God has inspired or breathed his word, he goes on to say, then it's good for us. It's beneficial. It's profitable. For what? Well, first of all, for doctrine. It tells me what's true. How do I know what's true? Because the Bible tells me what's true. How do I know what God is like? Because the Bible tells me what God is like. How do I know that Jesus is who he said he is? Because the Bible tells me that. The Bible tells me what's true. It's good for doctrine. Secondly, it's good for reproof. Reproof means conviction, rebuking you when you're wrong. You ever been rebuked by the Bible? You ever get up early? You're just reading your Bible. Nobody else in the house. Nobody moving about. House is quiet. You're just reading your Bible. And suddenly, out of nowhere, you feel. And you look to see. You know who it was? It wasn't your wife. It was the Holy Spirit. Because he was taking the word of God. He was going, hey, hey. What you're doing there is wrong. Hey, hey, what you're not doing there is wrong. He's rebuking, convicting. But the next word is encouraging. It's good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. I'm glad God doesn't just rebu rebuke, he corrects. It means to put back on the right path to redirect. And then fourthly, it's good for instruction, for training in righteousness. So the, so the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible so that, it would, that we would have it to teach us what is true and to keep us uh, on the path of serving the Lord. Listen to 2 Peter 1 and verse 21. It says, For no such prophecy was ever brought forth by the will of man. It's talking about the prophets. No prophecy ever came forth by the will of man, but men spoke from God. Who inspired the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? Well, men penned it, but God moved them, carried them along. He spoke to them as they were writing as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who's the author? Men or God? God is the author. Sweetest little girl came up to me um, a few weeks ago after a service. It was the end of the service. She met me right here. And um, 10 years old, I think. And she looked up at me with these deep eyes asking the deepest question of her heart, almost her voice trembling with emotion. And she said, Pastor, how do we know she used the word religion, but she meant our faith. How do we know that our religion is right? Isn't that a great question for a 10-year-old? How do we know our religion is right? What she was asking was, how do, in fact, she, she went on to say, how do we know 
other religions are actually the right way? Such an important question. And I, I, I took my Bible and I said, hold, sweetheart, hold your hands out. She did this. And I put my Bible in her hands and I said, this is how we know. This is how we know. Because God has told us in his word. Now you might protest that and you might say, well, that's circular logic. Because the next question would be, well, if we know that our faith is right because the Bible tells us, then how do I know my Bible is right? How do I know I can trust my Bible? The question is, how do I know that my Bible is inspired, that it is in fact God's word? Well, end of the day, we know that because of faith. We have faith to believe it. God has given us the faith to believe the gospel. We, we know that that's why we trust it. But that's, that is the primary reason. That's the, the foundation of it. But it's not the only reason. Because there are evidentiary reasons as well. The question is, how do we know that the Bible has been inspired by God? If I'm saying that the sword of the Spirit is called the sword of the Spirit because the Spirit inspired the Bible, God wrote the book, then can I substantiate that? How do I know God wrote the book? How can I have confidence? What are the evidences that God has inspired and preserved his word? I'm going to answer that with four answers very quickly. I've given these to you before over the years uh, in bits and pieces. But let me give them to you all at one time. Four reasons we know that we can trust the Bible. Write them down quickly, please. Number one, I know that the Bible is inspired because of the textual consistency. Because of textual, in fact, I would say it this way, the miracle of textual consistency. Now, what do we mean by textual consistency? It is that within the text of the Bible... There is an, a clear genesis, a clear beginning. There is a coherent textual theme, and there is a logical conclusion. In other words, the Bible, read from beginning to end, tells a story, communicates a logical message. So much so that you might think that it was written by one person at one time. And yet we know that's not the case at all. When you read about or when you understand who wrote the Bible, who penned the Bible, we know that it was written by over 40 human authors. Hang with me for a second. 40 human authors. And these were not 40 cousins who all came from the same place in life, lived at the same time, and thought the same way and therefore would kind of write the same words. No, these were 40 men from all different walks of life. Kings and shepherds, poor and rich. People who lived at different seasons, different times, and in different cultures. 40 human authors who pinned their little parts of the scriptures on three different continents, in three different languages. And over a period of time, of about 1,500 years. If y'all are tracking with me, say amen. God took 40 different men in three different continents, three different languages over a period of 1,500 years from different cultures, different worldviews. He had them write different pieces and you put it all together. And it begins logically, it has a theme throughout, and it ends. It is the miracle of textual consistency. If I took 40 of you and put you in 40 different parts of this building and said write one, parag one paragraph poem, 
And when you finish, we're going to bring those 40 poems together and we're going to try to make a story out of it. It would be chaos. And yet God, over the period of time, it's how I know I can trust his word. Okay? Textual consistency. Number two is archaeological confirmation. Archaeological confirmation. That is simply to say that over and over and over again, the spade of the archaeologist uncovers archaeological evidence that goes to prove the message of the Bible. I wish. I wish I could take every one of you and put you on an airplane and walk you around the Holy Land for 10 days and let you see the archaeological evidence of the Word of God. Particularly, I'd love to walk you down by the Dead Sea to Qumran and talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how God has clearly inspired and preserved His Word. Do you know that one of the great criticisms of the, of the Bible for many years was the absence of any archaeological evidence of the dynasty of King David. Do you know that King David is the most named person in the Bible, more than Jesus? David, the most named person in the Bible. And yet, there's no archaeological evidence, no record that, that, that there was ever a Davidic dynasty. And the critics said, well, how could this person who has such a prominent role in the Bible, how could this be true if we've never found anything about his kingdom? That was the criticism until 1993. And in 1993, an archaeologist digging in the north of Israel in Tel Dan uncovered an inscription which talked about the kingdom of David. And all God's Bible believers said, amen. You just give it time. The spade will find what the Bible says is true. And by the way, that one discovery from 1993 has been proven uh, again and again in the city of David uh, archaeological site in years since then. Archaeological confirmation, the, the archaeologist's work proves and substantiates the Bible. Number three, I've got to hurry, is fulfilled prophecy. How do I know the Bible's true? Because of prophecy. It simply means that, that prophecy in the Bible is not predictive literature. It is pre-written history. It is that God tells us what will happen before it happens. Do you know that Jesus in his lifetime fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies? No way that could have ever happened in any other life. The, the odds against such fulfillment in one life are astronomical. And yet, fulfilled prophecy proves the veracity of the Scripture. And even until today, prophecies continue to be fulfilled. And they are proof that the Scriptures are true. Number four, and lastly, is the testimony of transformed lives. Never underestimate the power of this evidence that lives have been reworked, remade, and changed forever by the power of this book. I know the Bible is God's inspired word. He wrote the Bible because I believe it by faith, but I also know it from these evidences. So would you join me in praising God for his word, amen? Praise the Lord, amen. Can you, imagine your, can you imagine your life without a Bible? There are plenty of believers in the world who don't have access to it like we do. But can you imagine your life without a Bible? Can you imagine our church without a Bible? I mean, listen, if we didn't have a... Did you know, by the way, we're, I'm standing on a Bible right now? You, many of you know that. 
Before we built this building, six feet under my feet right now, buried in a vault in the ground underneath the slab is a little vault with a copy of the Bible and a declaration signed by the members of our church that says as long as this building stands, as long as Brookstone Church exists, we will build our lives on the truths of the Word of God. We'll preach it from the pulpit. We'll teach it in our classes. We'll study it in our small groups. We'll teach our children and pass the Word of God to the next generation and proclaim it to them. This world, the word of the living God. Amen. Can you imagine Brookstone Church without a Bible? Man, it's the, it's the air we breathe. It's the food we eat. If we, we'd fall, we'd fail in our faith without the word of God. <laughs> if we didn't have a Bible, I wouldn't have anything to say on a Sunday morning. You wouldn't have any reason to get up and come. It is the word of God. So the Holy Spirit has given us a sword to use. And he said, I want you to be aware of your enemy. You need, to, you need the armor to protect you, but then you need to be able to fight against him. So take up the sword that the Spirit authored and go on the offense. How do we do this? Let me close by giving you several simple handles. If this is the word I want to give you some handles on how to use the Word of God. Let me close by answering the question, how do we use the Bible as a weapon to fight against the enemy and his assaults? Number one, keep it close. It's a simple truth, but keep it close. No Roman soldier would ever, ever go out on patrol without his weapon. Just like no police officer would go out on patrol today without his service weapon. No army uh, or no uh, Roman soldier is going to go out without his sword. Keep it close. You don't need to face the day without your sword. You don't need to go out in this culture. You don't need to try to stand for Jesus if you don't have your sword with you. So how do I, I don't, do I carry my Bible with me everywhere I go? Well, you could. Be all right. But I don't mean carry the actual pages with you. First of all, you keep it close by reading it. Read it. And, and I just mean that you develop the discipline in your life that you read the word so you know what's true. In Matthew 22, in verse number 19, I believe Jesus said, you do err because you don't know the scriptures. Read it so you know it. Secondly, meditate on it. Think about it. The, the word meditate means to mutter. <laughs> mutter. Just take this, the truths of scripture and just, just mumble about it. You're just thinking about it. It actually is the word which also means chewing your cud. <laughs> So you take it in and then you chew on it, okay? So meditate on it. This is what the Bible tells us that Joshua was to do. God said in Joshua 1.8, this, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Don't turn to the right or left. Number three, memorize it. Psalm 119 verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Keep the word close by reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, you'll have it close. Number two, handle uh, in order to be able to use the word as a weapon is keep it sharp. Keep it sharp. Now, how do you keep it sharp? Well, I believe, you know, I can almost see a Roman soldier with his sword. If a sword doesn't have, uh, I'm being careful, by the way. Somebody at first service said, you're going to cut yourself with that. I'm not. But if a sword, and this is very sharp, if a sword doesn't have sharp edges, you know what it is? It's just a club. <laughs> It's a crowbar. 
if it didn't have sharp edges. I can imagine a Roman soldier kneeling with his sword and with that flint stone and just rubbing and sharpening that edge. You and I need to do the same thing. Keep our sword sharp. How do we do that? I believe the way that we do that is by rubbing our heart on it. We do that as we pray it. Pray the Bible so that as I pray the Bible back to God, I'm just taking it and rubbing it along my heart and it's keeping it sharp in my soul. Nehemiah chapter number one, Nehemiah faced a difficulty and he just began to pray, but he prayed the word of God. He prayed the promises of God back to the Lord. Our Father, which art in heaven, thank you, God, that you're my Father. Thank you that I've been adopted in your family, your son, which art in heaven. Lord, thank you for heaven. I'm so glad I don't have to go to hell. Thank you, Lord, I've got the hope of heaven. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, thank you that you're holy. God, give me grace to be holy. Thy kingdom come. Lord, thank you. Your kingdom's coming. And I pray it come even now. Let it be alive in my heart even now. Do you understand? So I'm reading the word and I'm praying the word back to God. Number one, keep it close. Number two, keep it sharp. Number three, and finally, draw it quickly. Don't be afraid to use it. Okay? Draw it quickly. Whenever you sense the temptation, whenever you're walking out into the day and you've got it close and you sense the temptation or the discouragement or whatever, you draw it and you use it. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, he hasn't eaten a bite in 40 days, and he's 100% human as well as 100% God, but he is as hungry as you would be after 40 days with no food. He's hungry, he's weak, and the, the devil shows up when he's weak. Don't, don't miss that, by the way. Satan likes to show up at your weak moments. He shows up when he's weak, and he says to him, turn those stones to bread. You can do it. Go ahead and have a, have a bite. Second temptation, go up to the temple, throw yourself down. God will catch you. Third temptation, bow down and worship me. I'll give you the world. You don't have to die for it. I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. And all three times, you know what Jesus did? <sighs> Drew the sword. <sighs> it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. <sighs> it is written. Do not tempt the Lord your God. <sighs> It is written that you shall have no other gods before me. Keep it close, keep it sharp, and draw it out and use this weapon. And you know what? The Bible says that Satan left him and the angels came and ministered to him. I'll promise you, if you'll use your sword, the devil will leave you alone for a little while. He'll be back, but he'll leave you alone for a little while. Because if you jab him with the word enough, he'll get away from you. Now, if you just talk church and religion and, and uh, sports and whatever, he'll hang around you all day long. But you start pulling the word out on him and jab him, he'll leave you alone for a little while. All right? Put on the armor. Take up your weapon. Be aware of the enemy and be a worthy warrior. And you'll stand till Jesus comes.